And basically, she explained all the abuse that she went through, all the the horror that she went through. How can you not forgive someone for giving you up for adoption after what they've gone through? Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Chris. He's a Rhode Island native whose family has been in public service in the community for years. Chris had a challenging childhood, being bullied and doing poorly in school and struggling through the family life with an alcoholic father and having an almost adopted sister with emotional problems. After he left the Marine Corps, he started his search, but his outreach to his birth mother got her in deep trouble. Thankfully, he was able to make a connection with her and his brother, who opened up to Chris like he had never done before. This is Chris's journey. When I received Chris's brief background introducing himself and his adoption journey, he had written that he had lost his biological sister that same night. I began by offering my condolences to him and his family. Chris will share her piece of his journey later. He says his mother and father told him he was adopted from an early age, and they even knew his original first and middle names. Chris's mother couldn't have children, so they adopted him and another girl who would have been his older sister. He recalls a stressful time in his house while she was there, his father's alcoholism, and abuse by a paternal relative when he was a young man. I've read a lot of astonishing things in people's submissions, but I've never heard anyone say, you know, literally tonight someone in my biological family passed away, and I was just, I was blown by that, and I'm sure you guys were too. So, again, my condolences to you and your family. Well, thank you. So I would love it if you would just do me a favor and take me sure. all the way back to when you were a child. Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in your family as an adoptee. Um, my mom and dad told me as, as early as I can remember having a conversation with them since the beginning. In fact, they had they actually had my first name and my middle name right, but they just never knew my last name, my surname. Oh, okay. So they knew plenty <laughs> of information about you except for that. Yes, correct. Yeah. And you were comfortable correct. in your home? Did you have siblings? Uh, no, I did not. Well, actually, I did, but she was taken. My they my mom couldn't have kids, which is why I was adopted. Um, I was actually brought home on Father's Day in uh, what would have been 1968, and that was pretty cool. So every Father's Day, my father always said that to me. You know, this is the day we brought you home, kind of thing. You know, <laughs> that's so, pretty but, cool. Um, yeah, as far as um, having siblings goes, my mom couldn't have kids and. She wanted more than just me. So they adopted again, and that child had issues, mental health issues and whatnot. And, and in any case, she was taken back out by the state. So then I grew up as an only child after that. Do you recall her being in your home at all? I do. I do. So I must have been, I want to say, between 8, 7, and 10 in that age range. Mm. Yeah, you were old enough. And was she younger than you? No, older. She was at least 10 years older than me because I remember she was wearing makeup. Do you remember it feeling like a stressful time in your house at all? A absolutely. Um, being a cop, my dad was an alcoholic. Mm. He drank heavily. and My mom and him fought all the time about that, mostly. 
So, yeah, it wasn't exactly. But, I mean, I was never abused by them. Um, I, I was abused, but that wasn't until, you know, later in life it was by a, a family member other than them. How so, old were you around that time? Was this still in high before you before you left for the Marine Corps? Um, yes, it was. It was actually, actually, it continued even after I got out of boot camp. What kind of abuse was it, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, it was sexual. Mm-hmm. It was sexual. My dad's, my dad's uncle. Um, mostly, he just, you know, just touching back and forth, that kind of thing. It wasn't any, like, intercourse or anything. Just inappropriate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it went on for years, it sounds like, huh? It did. Man. I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm, it sounds like you've sort of made it away from that situation. So that's I'm thankful for that. Absolutely. For yep. Chris says the chaos of his father's alcoholism and his older siblings' mental health issues were part of why he didn't do well in school and why he wanted to get out of there and join the military. He struggled in school, then dropped out of high school in his senior year to join the United States Marine Corps. He was young and homesick and tried to underperform to get kicked out because he hated it. That plan was going to keep him in the Marine Corps longer, so he caught up with his class and graduated with his platoon. After the military, Chris went into public service back in Rhode Island. His adoptive family was great and made him feel loved, but the abuse he had suffered underscored his concerns about how he came into the world. He told me his parents were supportive of him searching for his birth parents, but he's not positive they were fully on board. The wanting to know part, um, the fear of, of was I a product of rape or incest, especially with the incest that was going on with my uncle. You know, it was just, uh, I just had a feeling that there was something wrong with me. I felt, some, you know, I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere, really. I didn't really know my roots, and I really didn't, you know, I mean, my fa- my adopted family wasn't mean to me or anything like that. They they accepted me and loved me. It was It was me feeling that way. Not mm-hmm. anything they did, you know. So I always struggle with that. Um, and my mom and dad were real supportive. They didn't um, discourage me from wanting to know more or anything like that. But part of me wonders if my mom was like that because they honestly believed I'd never get answers anyway. So there would never be a threat to them yeah. if that would have taken place. That was just my feeling on that. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't anything they said because my mom was kind of selfish in other ways. That's what that's what leads me to believe that she only supported me because she really thought I'd get nothing. You know, uh-huh. yeah, that's possible. In what ways did you sense her being selfish? Just in, in general, her the way she wasn't always available to talk. Like when I got picked on in school, bullying was a big problem when I was younger. Kids can be cool, you know. So when I come home hoping to get some support from mom. Um, I didn't really get support, you know, do you, that kind of thing. Do you get the sense as you reflect back on her lack of support that she had a lot going on? She had adopted a child. She had an alcoholic husband. They had to relinquish a child back to the state. Do you just get the feeling she just had just too much? All of that. All of that, which makes me feel guilty. But at the same time, for whatever reason, my needs weren't being met at that time. You know, even though she was incapable of meeting them, even, I mean, Superman couldn't probably meet them, <laughs> given what was going on. I asked Chris about when the urge to search really struck him. It hit him around the time he went into the Marines, but he couldn't do anything about it until he was out of the service in the early 1980s. His public service work after the Marines placed him in Child Protective Services jobs, a job where his own personal experiences were an asset toward advocating for the children he was there to protect. 
basically we investigate uh, child abuse allegations, sexual abuse, all that stuff. So it was kind of ironic because being abused myself, it um, it was something I could use as a tool. Like I, I could I could literally, if you put me in a room full of 15 people, I'll pick out the abusers without knowing a thing about them just because that's what I'm good at. You know, mm. so I use that to my advantage in the later part of my career. That is fascinating. So there's a lot of scumbags off the street because of the work I did and because of the fact I was abused myself. So I knew exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. Did you were you also able to use your own experience in a empathetic way with the children who were impacted by those bad actors? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like what? Just the the empathy side of things, and most of the time, this, they didn't. There was no there was no discussion. You you, you kind of have to. It's like how do I equate it? It's like it's like an eggshell you got in front of you, and if you, if you push it the wrong way, you're gonna get nothing. You know, you're gonna get a mess. And so you just basically you have to kind of coax, you know, and make them trust you, let them trust you, work your way in there because mm-hmm. people don't like to discuss that kind of stuff, as you can imagine. Yeah. Even at, even at that age, you know, at any age. Yeah, it must be hard for you to discuss it too, but it's great that you were able to use it. Is, it is, but it, it is because I'm to the point now where I'm past it. If, if, if this were you and I talking, you would know nothing about this, you know, while it was going on. Were you withdrawn while it was going on? Oh, yeah. Withdrawn, I almost committed suicide. I was, that was that bad. Mm, mm, mm. That's so sad. I'm glad you passed it, man. That's really crazy. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> For everybody's sake. In 2012, Rhode Island changed its laws to allow adoptees to access their original birth certificate, or OBC. Chris was one of the first people in line at the State Department of Vital Statistics to get a copy of his records. He submitted the application, paid the fee, and expected to have some information after a week. When he didn't hear anything, he checked back with the state, who reported they couldn't find his records. They weren't lost, just misfiled. He got some really unexpected information. It was in 2013. It was a full year after they originally started searching that they actually found it. Wow, man. That's a long year to wait, man. It is. Hmm. It is. I was I was resigned to the fact that I'd never know. I figured this, you know, somebody threw it away or, you know, who knows. But Hmm. they did find it eventually. So this was your original birth certificate. Correct. Yeah. And, and what did you get from it? What did you see? Um, that was another roller coaster ride. The first thing I saw was that my birth mother had given birth twice before me. Gave up two children. Yeah. What did you adoption. think? What did you think when you saw that? Um, it was stunned. I was stunned. I was. I was emotional. I was angry. Anger has always been a, a part of of this journey. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think the anger came mostly from the abuse. Thankfully, it wasn't it, the anger wasn't enough of an issue to you know cost me my job or anything. Although it did cost me some disciplinary, just not enough to lose my job. Thankfully, gotcha. Wow. But yes, yeah, so anger has always been there. But um, so I was angry that that she did that. I, you know, I felt rejected, hurt. Was there any solace in the fact that no, you were not the not, only one? Um, not yet. That didn't come until I was able to speak with my birth mother for the first time. If anything, it got worse when I first when I first saw that. I mean, I I was always a little angry and in that I felt rejected before I even got my birth certificate. But once I got the birth certificate and saw she did this twice before, it really put put me into a different kind of anger. I was actually like I I had this complex against women 
His OBC didn't have his father's name on it, but it did have his mother's signature on it, which struck him. There before his eyes was her handwriting. The OBC also had her home address at the time of his birth. It was an area that Chris was very familiar with. Dang, so as a public servant, you were in her neighborhood doing your job. Correct. That's (laughs) unbelievable. Yep, and there's more. There's more coincidences in there, too. Yeah? Um, The the church that I was baptized at was in her her parking lot. That's how close the church was. This was after I was adopted. Dang, I was already adopted with my new family, Uh and my parents had me— baptized in that church and the funny thing is back then the churches were set up community-wide so mm-hmm. you'd have like a church that would serve a community uh-huh. my parents did not live they did not live in that community they lived in a community across the city but yet they still for some reason chose that church i don't know if my mother knew somebody there or what that's really and fascinating that- wow what an odd and crazy coincidence how cool <laughs> Chris took the information straight to a Facebook group of search angels called Search Squad. His search angel, Tina, who specializes in searches in the Rhode Island region, found a comprehensive set of information within 24 hours. She used a database called Been Verified to verify his mother's identity and provided him a template for his introductory outreach to her. Chris sent his letter via certified mail, including a few pictures of himself. But keep in mind, He's angry with the woman he's introducing himself to and feels rejected. I asked Chris what he said, given how hurt he was feeling. Yeah, see, that's that's exactly why the template that they send you is so important, because coming from the point of view I was coming from, my letter would would not have sounded anything like the one that she got. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I, I would have been like more or less coming from feeling rejected point of view and why, how could you do this to me? And you know, that kind of thing, which obviously is not a way to get a good response from someone. (laughs) Right. That's right. So I'm glad I didn't, didn't go with my impulse to do that. And this letter kind of get the template guide you in words, your intent in a way that doesn't sound threatening or, you know, any kind of negativity there. It's all about just, you know, hoping for the best and, you know, seeking a relationship with, with your biological family. Yeah, That's it. that makes sense. So you sent it, it off, certified, off, certified mail, it off. and you got some pictures in it. And I got some pictures in it. Good. And about uh, five days later, I got the little green card back in the mail, and there was Marianne's signature on the front of it. I still have the card. So the first thing I did was pulled out my original birth certificate and wanted to compare the two. The signatures. And The signatures of my birth mother in 1967 and my birth mother in 2016. Oh, that's smart. What'd you find? And they were identical. Wow. They were identical. Mm. (laughs) So I knew instantly that it was her. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. But I didn't get a response from her um, for actually three months after that. Chris waited patiently for a response, but it was his wife's intervention that motivated his birth mother to respond. Three months later... My wife wrote a letter, unbeknownst to me, a second letter. This one was not certified, telling my birth mother that, you know, I had been in the military and, you know, I was a veteran of Desert Storm. And so basically she kind of put me up on this, this pedestal, which is why she said she didn't want me to know about it. 
because hmm. I'm sure I wouldn't have I wouldn't have let her send it because it just sounded like it was bragging and that's not I didn't think that was going to go over well. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I know I wouldn't have let her send it, but she sent it, and it was a week after that when I got the response. Really? Yep. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So especially to think that you would have blocked that letter had yes. she told you that was her intent. Correct. Wow. <laughs> That's a good wife. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she'll, she's the first one to tell you this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Which she, is funny. She must have tapped into something in her own intuition as a wife that said, if somebody came back to me, this is right. something I would want to know. And yep. that must have been why she felt that. comfortable doing it. Chris's mother, Mary Ann, wrote back with more news that shocked him. His mother was in a very bad relationship, and his reemergence had gotten her in serious trouble at home. The three months that it took her to respond with her own letter was not by choice. My birth mother was remarried to a man that she'd been married to since she left Rhode Island, who was an abuser, mm. controlling, jealous, all sorts of domestic violence. And because he was so jealous and controlling... Um, my birth mother apparently has been completely honest with her family in in regards to me in you know saying that I gave up a child for for adoption and she never hid that from them which I was surprised to hear because most of the time especially you know if there's incest or rape there's no the family doesn't know anything you know right that's kept hidden for obvious reasons. So I assumed this was going to be one of those cases, and it turns out it was not. So when the husband, her husband, found um, found out that I contacted her, um, he beat her. Oh, no. Put her in the hospital at 72 years old <laughs> oh. and wouldn't let her have any contact with me. And that's why it took three months, because she just got out of the hospital, and she was, you know. And then when the second letter came... She was afraid she was going to get another beating if he found it. And she didn't want, you know, she didn't know if the, if the letters are going to keep coming or, you know, she just, so she wanted to respond and, and not put herself in jeopardy. Oh my gosh. Yep. 72 years old and she's still dealing with that. Shit. And she was abused, which I didn't find this out until later, but she was abused as a child also, which was why she got pregnant three times because <laughs> she was, she even told me this. She said, I, I thought love was the same as sex. Yeah. So I just kept getting pregnant. Sad, God, sad existence. That is so sad. Wow. I cannot mm -hmm. believe that he yep, so was so insecure that he yep. saw your letter and beat her at yep. that age. That's just horrible. Yep. And his son, which is my, my brother, was also subject to that abuse and beatings. Oh, man. So he was threatened. Um and I know this for a fact because he didn't say it. His wife did. So he wouldn't even tell me. And I wouldn't ask anyway just because it's so personal. But mm -hmm. his father told him that if he had any contact with me, he'd be written out of the will. He'd be taken off the life insurance. He'd have nothing. He'd mm -hmm. be basically thrown out of the family. Wow. So that's why that's why my, my brother really had no – even though he knew about me all his life, he didn't, he didn't want to, you know, risk – screwing himself just to know me. I was blown away when I heard the horrible outcomes of Chris's outreach. 
Every adoptee that attempts to reconnect with their birth family has some feeling that they don't want to stir up trouble for whomever they're connecting with. Sadly, his mother was subjected to cowardly domestic violence, and his brother was terrorized out of being connected with his own kin. I asked Chris how Marianne ever found the space to reach out to him and how he ever connected with his brother. So in the meantime, in this last past year, her husband, Richard, had a stroke. So, and it was so bad of a stroke that he actually, he's in a nursing home now. He's not able to stay at home anymore. So once that took place, Marianne was a free woman. Now she could basically start her life by herself, but still, now she's got grandkids and she's got her son and she had her other daughter, but that's the one that committed suicide. Oh, dang. So after his stroke and he went into a nursing home, she then had the freedom to reach directly out to you. Correct. Correct. And even then, she was surprised and I guess shocked that I even searched for her because she figured, you know, who would want to search for somebody who who gave them up, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But like I said to you earlier, it wasn't really I I needed this this uh, cross off my back. In other words, I got, you know, I just wanted answers, even bad answers. Any answers would have been better than none. Mm-hmm. Which is what I had. Yeah. But in in doing that, when she reached out to me, um, because she was so leery, she did it through my brother's wife, Sarah. Chris credits Sarah as the catalyst for the connections he was able to make throughout his journey. Sarah shared that his brother Richard, named after his father who had the stroke, had a pretty bad childhood. She warned him to proceed gently with Richard and to take his time, partially because the very idea of connecting to Chris had also been associated with threats from Richard's father. She is also, she has her own adoption story, which is where her frame of mind was in helping me. She was actually helping herself in a way. That's fascinating. It's almost the same empathy that you showed for the children in your community. You now have someone else who has an empathetic view on your own situation as an adoptee and is able to then say, I got to help this situation along. That's really unbelievable. Richard basically had an even worse childhood than Marianne did. He was abused his whole life. He's, he's stable. He's, you know, he's working He's a truck driver. He's, he's got a, they own a house together. So he's, he's healed now, but you got to go slow with him. Don't, you know, don't rush into anything. So that's why it took a year for him to come into the picture. Even though he's known about me, he didn't, he wasn't really comfortable yet. Took him a while to get to that point. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I guess, the very thought of connecting with you was connected right. with threats. So exactly, it would take a year to peel back all the layers that would make that a safe yep. thing to even do. Absolutely. And of course, in my mind, in that year, I had nothing but thoughts of rejection because I said, you know, here we go again. You know, I reach out to these people and they basically ignore me, you know, because I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea what's going on behind the scenes. I'm just basically assuming everything. Yeah. Which is never a good, good plan. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Sometimes inside your own mind is the most dangerous place. Chris spoke to Mary Ann for the very first time in August of 2017, a full year after he had received his OBC. She was free to speak openly now that she was free from her husband's oppressive tyranny. During a long, deeply emotional conversation, she described how her abusive youth, led to her pregnancies. So how was that first conversation? Emotional, 
very emotional. Um, she cried. I cried. We, we talked for about four hours. Wow. It, she, she basically gave me her life story about how she was abused and her stepfather was the abuser. And, you know, she was devastated and was just looking to get out of the house. And, and the trap of an abuser equating right. sex with affection. Correct. And that's why he took her to Indiana to get her out of here, because she had so much she had so much of a past here in Rhode Island that he, you know, everywhere he went, it was she'd have she'd know somebody or knew that this guy or that guy. And he was so controlling. He said, we're just going to move to another state. And that's when they ended up in Indiana. And so then he moved he, her halfway across the country. And then he created <laughs> his own personal hell for her. Absolutely. Yep. Chris and his mother wanted to reunite face to face but their plan was contingent upon her husband's care plan. If he received in-home care with a visiting nurse service, they would have to meet at Richard and Sarah's house. If he went into a nursing home, Chris could meet Marianne at her home. Things worked out better than Chris expected. The husband went into a nursing home, and the family visited him in Rhode Island. The visit really made Chris feel good about his connection to his brother, Richard. He ended up in a nursing home, and they came here anyway. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They came they, to Rhode Island. To they went me. to Rhode Island? Your brother and your yep. mother? Yep. My brother, my mother, my two nephews, and my sister-in-law, Sarah. Wow. When was that? They, um, That was just this past weekend. <laughs> Are you serious? That's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah dead, dead serious. Dang, that's incredible, man. What was that like? Yep. Oh, uh, it was just, there's no words. The, the first thing I noticed about my brother was his voice. Mm -hmm. If you were to get him on the phone, you wouldn't know if it was me or him. Is it's that, that right? close. I never knew that was that that was possible. I didn't think you could have. I mean, I know there's twins and stuff, but twins don't always sound alike. Yeah. You know, but we sound identical. It's crazy. That is crazy. So even, even his kids were said, that's the first thing they were like. They were like, this guy is definitely your brother. <laughs> uh, you know, he's our <laughs> uncle. Because he sounds so much like you, Dad. You yeah, know, that's really the first thing they said. Unbelievable. That must have been then, really powerful for you too, because you've come from a place of oh, not feeling any belonging, and immediately, exactly, you are audibly to connected to this dude. Right. I used to get beat up because of my voice. You know, that's basically crazy. I was bullied because of it. So yeah. to find out now that there's actually somebody else in the world that sounds just like me is pretty cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. What else did you learn? God, we, we, we both have sons the same age, and they're both named Alex. <laughs> really? Yep. That's really cool. The same age with the same name. Same age, same name. <laughs> That's unreal. And how was yeah. it to see your mom? Um, there's really no words. It actually made me I, – I, the first thing that I remember thinking to my stuff was I, I was nauseous. I felt sick, like physically sick. Mm -hmm. It was that nerve wracking because I had no idea, you know, what I, I, I saw pictures of her online and stuff. But I didn't I didn't really know how much she was going to look like me until I saw her in person. And then could you and see you it? Could definitely. Yeah. All day. Same eye, same smile, same everything. Wow. That must have been so cool. Yeah. Richard likes to drive. So he held the wheel, driving the family all around that weekend. Chris finds driving stressful, so he enjoyed being his brother's passenger. Sarah had prepared Chris that Richard was a fairly reserved, unemotional person. But he revealed his own secret suspicion about how he came into this world. And Chris gave Richard a gift that broke through, touched his heart, 
and united the brothers. The first thing his wife said to me when I first started talking to his wife was that Richard is a very quiet, private person. He doesn't, he's not a talker. He's not a socializer at all. So, which was part of the reason, you know, from all the abuse and all that. But it was also part of the reason why I never pushed the issue of, of wanting to, to meet him because I knew, you know, that that just wasn't his style. Yeah. You know? So the fact that he came, drove all the way here, and then actually talked to me was like I was in heaven. Yeah, know? dude, that's huge. That's it really was big. crazy. Wow. Yep. And he said one of the first things he said to me once it was just him and I was that he didn't think that his father was actually his father, that he thought his mother had another affair after she was married, which I'm sure very well could have happened, mm-hmm. and that his father was somebody else. And, you know, it's funny. His wife said to me, you know, one thing you'll never see Richard do is cry. She said he's not an emotional guy. He's very stoic, quiet, reserved and all of that. Right. Yeah. Well, the night the night he left, it was Saturday night. My dad, when I went in the service, my dad gave me a a two dollar bill for good luck. And I had that in my wallet and it stayed there ever since. This was, you know, going on uh, 20, 30 years after the fact. I still had that two dollar bill. Well, he was saying goodbye and, and we just, we were hugging and, you know, he said he loved me and I loved him. And for some reason, I just felt this urge to pull out the $2 bill and give it to him. Well, the first thing he said to me when he saw the $2 bill was, I've collected $2 bills my whole life. So now I'm handing him a $2 bill. And it was just, it was like, a, it was like as if, as if we never were apart. It was like we've, we've been together all this time. That's how, what it felt like to me. And then he started crying. That was really so thoughtful of you to give him a memento that had meant so much to you. And right. how unbelievable that it was something that he had always collected his <laughs> entire life. That's unreal. Isn't that? Yeah. That was crazy. Man, you guys really have a connection and a bond. That's really spectacular. Yes. Then Sarah started crying because she had never seen Richard so openly emotional. They all cried. And it was amazing. I asked Chris if Marianne ever revealed anything about his biological father. She shared that his father was an Italian man. She met at a Navy dance in Newport, Rhode Island, and Chris was the product of a one-night stand. But during that three-month period where Chris was waiting to hear from Marianne, he submitted his own sample to Ancestry DNA. He pulled his DNA file down from Ancestry DNA, uploaded them to another site called GED Match. Search Squad the Facebook group Chris is a member of had a bunch of genealogists in it, including one brilliant young man who did the research for Chris. When Chris contacted one of the matches that the genealogists had found, the man eventually admitted to being with his mother. Please try to remember that his mother had been abused as a child, and her mentality was to equate physical connections with affection. Try not to judge harshly what you're about to hear. One of those genealogists was a 13-year-old kid from Atlanta, Georgia, a black kid who lives in the ghetto, who loves genealogy, and he's a genius. Wow. So he took he took my results, and he had my father narrowed down to three men within 24 hours. Way to go, man. That's awesome. And out of those three men, two of them are on Facebook. So that so, makes it easy so to I, either confirm or eliminate. Correct. So I sent the first, the, the guy that he was almost, 100% sure was my father, I sent him an email. Basically the same kind of email that I sent my, my birth mother. And his response, which was really bizarre, was 
Basically, he admitted knowing my mother and said the last time he saw her, he gave her a ride home from a music concert that they went to together. And he's never seen her since. That's all he would admit to. Of course, my response was, well, did you sleep with her? And his response was, not only did I sleep with her, my brother and my cousin did too. Yikes. (laughs) So now I've got three guys that are all related that have all slept with my mother. The first guy Chris connected with, named Bill, admitted that he was born with a certain physical limitation that made the odds of him being the father very slim. Bill suspected his cousin was Chris's biological father. After Chris figured out who Bill's cousin was, he learned that there was a chance they had been in the same room at a family event years before. And the first cousin of Bill's is actually, this is another crazy, you're not going to believe this one. The first cousin of Bill's is the boyfriend of my wife's childhood friend. The first cousin of Bill's. Yep, which is my father. My father. Your biological is father the, is the boyfriend. My biological is the boyfriend of my wife's childhood best friend. So, That's which means crazy. my wife's best friend, his name is Jen. Jen's wedding, this guy was at. So I was at this. I was at this wedding with my biological father, and I had no idea who he was. And from what I understand, I've I've never met him or spoke to him. He's a real asshole. Mm. That's what even his own cousin said that. So I'm, I'm glad that I don't have any contact with him because, you know, it probably wouldn't have been anything good. So and he, he, knows, he knows that I've been in contact with his cousin because his cousin told him, you know, he said, hey, look, there's a guy, guy looking for, for you that, you know, wanting to know information, saying that you could be his father just to give you a heads up. And the guy said, oh, fuck him, you know, let him go fuck himself. I'm not talking to anybody, which is that tells me, you know, what I need to know, you know. So mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. There's no reason to even go down that path. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But just the fact that this 13-year-old kid in, in Atlanta, Georgia, found my father with nothing more than my DNA, that that story in itself is crazy. That is really amazing. That's a smart kid, <clears throat> man. Props to him. Yep. That's amazing. Chris didn't tell any of that story to Marianne to protect her from the pain of the situation. He told his brother Richard who also knows about the other two siblings his mother gave up for adoption. She told the family everything. She told them that she had three kids and, you know, and the one that she really wanted to keep was me because I was the last one out of three. Uh huh. But she, she couldn't do it because, you know, her, her father was very controlling and didn't want her in the house with a baby. How did that make you if feel you when know? she told you I wanted to keep you? I, I think I kind of, like just like with the abuse that I went through, everything is is slow catching up with me. In other words, I don't always express what I'm what I'm really feeling yeah. until a long time after it's happened. Yeah. So to answer your question, I don't think I felt anything. It still has because sunk I, I just in. haven't processed it. That makes I haven't sense. Processed it yet. I was going to ask no, you about yep. the anger that you felt toward women in general. When you first okay. discovered you were one of three who had been given up for, for adoption, you said you were right. pretty angry. How did you get over that? Yeah. Um, on the phone, that four-hour phone conversation pretty much put me at ease. That's when I found solace. Mm-hmm. When you asked me about the solace earlier, that's, that's where it began was through that conversation on the phone. And basically, she explained all the abuse that she went through, all the, the horror and the, and the shit that she went through how can you not forgive someone for giving you up for adoption after what they've gone through? 
Yeah. You know, so that's when I kind of put my guns away and, you know, did away with my, my, my mistrust, you know, obviously not overnight. It, it's still a process. It's still a, you know, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. Chris has come a long way from the repetitive themes of trauma and sexual abuse that happened in his own life and were sadly part of the lives of his relatives. And you remember Chris had a biological sister who recently passed away. She also has a tragic story. She must have found Chris's address in the introductory letter he sent to Marianne while the husband Richard was in a nursing home. Without any notice, she drove 12 hours from Indiana to Rhode Island to Chris's house. And I didn't even know who she was. I just saw a car in my driveway, and I'm like, who the hell is this? And it's my, my half-sister. <laughs> she just knocked on the door. Yeah, basically sitting in the car, because I, I wasn't even home from work. So really? she wasn't even, she didn't even get it. She was just sitting in the car, so she must have arrived, because I work third shift, and she was there in the morning. So she must have arrived sometime during the night and just basically slept in, the, in my driveway in her car until I got home. So I see her sitting in her car, and of course I, I approach the car, and I get her to roll the window down, and she tells me who she is, and she shows me her driver's license, and then asks me if she can talk to me. And I said, well, well of course. And I said, you know, I, I figured she just wanted to say hi to me as my sister. So she tells me that the state of Indiana took her kids away from her, and she needed money to get them back. So she was there to ask me for money. You know, I said, well, I can give you a couple of dollars. I said, well, how, how much are you looking for? And she said, as much as you can give me. So I gave her 20 bucks just because, you know, I mean, I'm not going to give her hundreds of dollars. Yeah, you know, that's not the point. The point is that she was basically begging me for money. She doesn't even know me. His sister asked if he would please keep her visit a secret. Don't tell the family she was there. She said she was going back to Indiana. The next night, his sister's car was there again. She asked to come inside to talk, but Chris was leery, so they continued their conversation in his driveway. It was there that she gave him an indecent proposal to earn his money. While she's telling me this, my mouth's on the ground. Now, I've seen shit that you couldn't, I've seen more shit than most people would forget about. So it's not like I'm not used to seeing strange things, but when it's your own flesh and blood saying this to you, I, I I didn't even know what to do. I just stood there in the driveway. Listening to it was like it wasn't even it wasn't real. It was almost like a dream, like a bad dream. Yeah. And she's telling me this. So needless to say, I said, um, I said, I'm not going to do anything even close to that. I said, so what I think you should do is get in your car and, and go and just stay away. So in the meantime, my wife was real nervous because she's watching this whole thing in the driveway and she calls the cops. So the cops show up before my sister could leave and they arrested her. Because she had an outstanding warrant in Indiana, which I didn't know about. So they arrest my sister in my driveway. So she goes to the police station. You know, they transport her to the police station. She, she's in lockup. And I get a phone call from a bail bondsman asking me if I want to if I want to post bail for her cash. So make a long story short, I agreed to do it. I figured at least we get her out of here, get her back home. She can answer the charges at home rather than do it from here and still be here and be, you know, hounding me for money in the meantime. Right. I figured it's just best to get her out of here. So I put, put bail up on her. She didn't show up for the hearing. So now she's got another warrant on top of the original one. And I'm out my 500 bucks now because she skipped. Yep. So mm. make it, make a longer story shorter. They pick her, the state police finally find, find her. And she ends up getting extradited to Indiana, which is where she remained until she committed suicide. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Was she so incarcerated had, at the time of her suicide? Yes, she was. Yeah. Mm. So had I not, or had my wife not called the cops and had, you know, basically, well, she didn't get her arrested. The warrant is what got her arrested, Absolutely. you know, because they ran her, they ran her license and found out she was wanted. So, but my point is if that hadn't happened, she, I mean, who knows? She might've still killed herself, but I, I've always felt responsible, Yeah. you know, because yeah. of that. And it still bothers me. It's, it's, you know, it's only been a, a month. And it's, you know, it's just, I, I can't get my head. I, I can't, honestly, I can't even really think about it because as soon as I think about it, it, it just bothers me. Yeah. I so I imagine. try not to, right, put but that you, on there. You, you were, you started to say something that I'm going to support, which is along the lines of the fact that it sounds like she was already on a trajectory towards self-destruction regardless. Oh yeah. She lost her kids. I mean, she, she was a, a heavy drug. She was a heroin addict, heavy drug use. Right. So um, while it may have been poor timing and highly coincidental that yeah. the last set of events, <clears throat> pardon me, happened in your driveway, you could have yeah. been, one of one million people that she could have come up to propositioned right. in order to try yep. to get money and someone yep. else fearing for the person who she propositioned would, it, right. you know, may have feared for that person's safety, called the cops and the same series of events would have unfolded. So right. I'm sure it must, you must feel guilty, but in all honesty, this was going to happen regardless I know. I know. um and I, but I, I don't mean to make light i mean i think no 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 you know, I, you... I i totally get that in indiana chris's sister died chris feels responsibility for his sister's untimely death but i reminded him and he agreed that she had a personal history that preceded their meeting and it sounded like she was already on a trajectory toward her own demise that had nothing to do with him as a reminder all of this happened before Chris's family said they were driving to Rhode Island to meet him. So, of course, he was concerned that they weren't really driving all that way to reunite with him. He and his wife wondered if maybe they were out for revenge because they felt he was a contributor to his sister's death after getting arrested in his driveway. They nearly called off the reunion. I, I didn't do that, and I'm glad I didn't because it, it turned out, obviously, to be nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, and I feel like you would have gotten a signal in your gut before the meeting. Yeah. You would have gotten right. some signal that something bad was planned. You would have gotten some kind of signal that would have given you a bad feeling. And the fact that you didn't get a bad feeling means um, you it was right that you pursued the, the reunion. That's really good. And you guys had a great time. That's really cool. We had a fantastic time. I can't even... It hasn't sunk in yet. You know, like I said, it, everything takes a little while with me. Like I said, it was as if we never were apart. That's how close my brother and I are right now. That's really amazing, <laughs> man. I'm really yep. glad for you for and, that. Thank you. They call it a honeymoon phase, too, and they, they say it's common to feel this way when you first meet them. Yeah. But honestly, I it, it, just like you said about the gut with the bad thing, my gut would tell me that this is just a phase. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't say that. It feels real. Well, crazy. Chris, I really appreciate you taking time to share your story. No, your journey no has been really kind of unbelievable. I mean, I'm sorry yep. for all of the abuse, literally, that your entire family has gone through. But it sounds fantastic that you guys were able to get to this point where you were able to yep. find each other absent all of the abusers. I mean, that's incredible. 
I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I'm sorry for the loss of your sister, but I'm really glad that you guys are in a much happier place together. Me too. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care, man. All the best to you. You too, sir. And thank you for all you do. You do great work out there. You you give us a voice and, uh, you know, hopefully it's, you know, people are interested in hearing it and they can help themselves. Yeah, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. That's the goal that we can all learn from one another's experiences. Take care, man. All the best. Hey, it's me. I'm really glad Chris got some answers from his search and was finally able to meet his birth mother. It was sad to hear that his desire to know her landed her in the hospital at the hands of her abusive husband. I don't wish ill on anyone, but there was an odd sense of relief for me when I heard the man's health issues took him out of the picture, opening the pathway for Marianne and Chris to connect. And how cool was it that Chris and his brother were able to forge a bond on their first meeting together? I loved that Chris's gut told him to hand over the $2 bill that meant so much to him over the years. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Chris's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I, really? If you would like to share your story of locating and connecting to your biological family, visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can also find the show at facebook.com slash really, or follow me on Twitter at WAI Really. And please, if you like the show, take a moment to rate Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, or leave a comment at whoamireallypodcast.com. Those ratings can help others find the podcast too.